Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm back home in Bucks. It's a soggy, wet, damp, horrible Buckinghamshire today. Vicky's over in deepest, darkest Oxfordshire after an exciting morning for you and your dog, Vicky. Yes, but I don't think we should be talking about that. Oh, well, we'll leave that hanging then. You might have turned that out. <laughs> how, how very disappointing. No, okay, all right, very quickly then. Uh, I am very fortunate to foster a hearing dog, and a, he's a stud dog, and this morning he has been making puppies. Congratulations, oh. Charlie. <laughs> Excellent. Good for him. <laughs> Good boy, Charlie. Good boy. Yeah. <laughs> so having got that out of the way, perhaps you should uh, tell us what the topic is for today's podcast and who we have as a guest, Vicky. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'd love to. So today we're going to be talking about executing on a corporate vision in region. And we are so lucky to have with us one of our amplified advisors. And this particular person has experienced hyper growth in three different companies or very different companies that have all been successful in their own ways. But before I introduce the person, um, I'm sure there's not many of us that can say that we've been to a work colleague's 10th birthday party. So with that, I'm going to introduce Louis G. So Sam, I can see you giggling there. So you probably yeah. guess why it was his 10th birthday. I mean, I'm assuming he is uh, lucky enough to be, have his birthday on the 29th of February. There you go. Nothing, nothing. No, no flies on you, sir. You're very good. Yes, absolutely. Now, now, stuff. Vicky Excellent. said you did come to my 10th. That's brilliant. My 40th. That's a fair while ago now, Vicky. <laughs> yes, it was. It was indeed. Yeah. So I've known you, gosh, it's counting up this morning, 22, 23 years, I think. So it's, it's yeah. great to be working with you. And I'm so excited about sharing with our, our listeners today your experiences because the the vast experience that you've had in the sales leadership positions that you've had I think there's going to be a wealth of of knowledge coming out here cool Fantastic. happy to be here good stuff I think this is going to be really interesting so Lewis you probably best start if you don't mind um, by giving us maybe a little potted history of your career and, and how you I say little and potted you know you've had quite an impressive career so you're permitted to take slightly longer than our, our usual guest would would take if you so choose oh, sure I mean I'll probably skip through it but let, let's start by setting out and saying that you know I never anticipated a career in IT and I guess a lot of people you know start out that way really uh, in fact um as we'd just been chatting about prior to uh, actually starting this recording, I'm a bit of a petrol head. So from the age of about eight years of age, there was only one career for me, and that was going to be a racing driver. So um, I sort of pursued that through uh, go-karting as a kid and then uh, raced cars very early on when I was 17 and able to go racing at that point. In fact, I even raced against Ayrton Senna. You know, there's my claim to fame. I get in early. Did um, you beat him? Funnily enough, I didn't know. So uh, <laughs> I, I say to this day, he clearly had a faster car and a lot more money than me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. If things have been uh, different. Exactly, exactly. So I sort of I did my A-levels and I spent two years just trying to uh, become a professional racing driver, which which ultimately didn't quite work out. But I had some fun along the way um, and then headed off to do a, a degree after that. Decided I didn't wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So so I did a degree, did a business studies degree at uh, Aston University and, and they 
they were one of the first universities in the UK that did the sort of four-year degree with a third year working in industry, uh, which really appealed to me because I thought I'd come out with something, you know, more tangible. And at that point in time, I had I did three interviews. I went to for an interview at Vauxhall Cars. Thought well, I've got an interest in cars. That could be that could be good. Um, I interviewed for Pedigree Pet Foods. Um, because they paid half again as much as anybody else on that year out and gave you a company car. So that seemed a good reason to go for that. And then the third one was IBM. And um, I ultimately uh, got the job with IBM. Interesting story about pedigree pet foods as well, which um, maybe not for today, but I'll, I'll come back to about discrimination, which is first and, well, maybe I will, first and only time in my life, really, that I was discriminated for something that was completely out of my control, which I guess in these current climates fa fairly pertinent. And those that know me and have seen me, I'm, I'm a relatively... Uh, short individual i'm not the tallest of chaps so and um which is and, useful uh, if you want to be a racing driver well perfect for racing driver or jockey but you know but apparently not ideal for being a salesperson in pedigree pet foods i i kid you not before i went for the interview uh, my tutor said to me oh just be aware they um they typically take tall people on in these sales roles and i said you're having a laugh aren't you what, what do you mean i said but don't worry about it i'm I'm good at interviews. I'll go and wow them. It'll be absolutely fine. And I literally walked through the door and this six foot plus chap put his hand out to shake my hand, realized I was shorter than he wanted me to be. And from that moment on, it, it literally went downhill so much so that even as a perhaps slightly cocky, but, you know, still only a student in his third year at university, 10 minutes into the interview, he said something about, do I have any uh, comment to make or something? And I was literally so annoyed at that point about where it was going. I said, oh, only one thing. Is it true you only recruit tall salespeople in your environment? And he blustered a bit and said, no, 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 absolutely not. No, it's um, we just tend to be a tall company. And uh, I got up and went out. <laughs> And, um, and, you know, and there was this whole perception of, you know, you've got to be dominating. You've got to yeah, dominate yeah, people, etc. Yeah. to do it. And I, I thought it was fascinating. And as a, you know, somebody had come from my background, I'd never, never experienced anything like that. So it was a salutary lesson early on in my career. But anyway, move, yeah. move on from that. IBM did decide I was tall enough to be able to uh, have a job with them. So, <laughs> so I then uh, I, I did a year with, with IBM. And what I found was whilst I wasn't a, a great techie, I, um, I loved the industry. And what I really liked about it was the ability to get access to senior people very quickly. You know, I, I was working in the sales office in Warwick and, you know, guys who were in there early to mid twenties, account managers, et cetera, were going out and meeting up with the financial director of Unipart or Jaguar Cars. And, and that really inspired me that you could get to those sorts of people. So, so I did that, um, decided I didn't want to go back to IBM, decided very quickly they were too big for me. Um, I wanted something a bit smaller, something I could uh, fill a bit bigger part of the team really, and ended up going and working for an ICL. Uh, those of you who remember that shows how old I am, an ICL reseller uh, when I left university and did that with various iterations. It's quite tough times for ICL, but the company got sold and uh, we were merged with another reseller. I went through a whole load of interesting, uh, interesting aspects and things going on there. Um, people blocking the gates of our car park because we haven't paid our bills, uh, all, all sorts of exciting stuff that happened early on, but certainly yeah, put me in, in really good stead. And, and then I guess really the, the proper start to where my career has led me is in, in 93, I joined a company called Firefox, not the web Firefox, but a prior company based in the West Midlands. Um, based around ICL technology. And that was really my entry into software, uh, but also small organizations and, and fast growing organizations. We actually, within the two, first two years I was there, we floated on NASDAQ, which was an incredible and exciting wow, cool. period of time. You know, I was still relatively junior in it, so watched from afar more than played a huge part in it, but still pretty fascinating and interesting to do. But also so early on, within a couple of years after that, as we were trying to break into America and struggling, we ended up merging with a company called FTP Software, who again had been a bit of a 
darling, albeit relatively small, but a darling of NASDAQ. And literally within a couple of years of that, uh, really crashed to nothing. And, and because the product that they produced, which is a PCTCP product, was in essence put into the operating system by Microsoft. And FTP sort of failed to see that they needed to move and innovate yeah. very quickly from that and continue to say, yeah, but ours is better. Ours is worth money. People will continue to pay. Yeah. And of course they didn't. And, and ultimately yeah. went down went down pretty rapidly. So um, I got out of that uh, at a good good point in time and went to work at Citrix at that point. So in 1998, I, I joined Citrix. I joined with Mark Stradling or, or Mark recruited me in. Mark I'd worked with at, at Aslan when I'd been selling through distribution with uh, with Firefox. And I then had a, a fantastic, you know, eight years at Citrix as we went through that stellar growth and went from probably somewhere around 50 million through through a billion dollars whilst I was there um, and had all sorts of uh, good times and met a lot of good people, um, including one sat with us today. So uh, yeah, that, that was good. And we'll, we'll come back to that, you know, I'm sure. But uh, after that, I did what a number of people did uh, from Citrix. I took a little longer to go there in some instances, but I jumped from Citrix to VMware. So I did that for four years. Um, I then ultimately couldn't resist the opportunity to jump out in 2009 and go into a, a UK startup again, wanted to relive that, uh, that Firefox um, uh, episode, I guess. Yeah, that was three tough years. Um, and I learned again, quite a lot. I guess that's what we all do through our careers. We, we're yeah. constantly learning. And I guess the thing that I learned in that organization was just how lucky I'd been up to that point that I'd gone into companies that had fantastically engineered products before any of the stuff that we're going to talk about today. If you don't have a rock solid, well-engineered product to build on that you could trust in and take out to your customers, then yeah with all the best selling partners, you name it in the world, you know, you're not going to get there. And, yeah. and that's kind of where, where I struggled that environment. So who, who again, was that then, company? That was a company called Centrix who Centrix, um, right. yeah, yeah, know, had some, yeah. some great ideas. Um, and, and I guess my take on it, it was, it was led by more of a, it evolved from a consulting activity and a consulting yeah. practice whereupon a product was built, if you like. The, yeah. the trouble with that and the trouble with that whole consulting as approaches is what consultants do. They're always looking to evolve and grow and we never stop long enough to engineer hard and fast yeah. what the product did. Yeah. And, you know, as opposed to what I then grew to realize was the companies I'd come out of that were started by the Ed Yakabuchis, the Diane Greens of this world, you know, fundamentally engineers, Fred Luddy, you know, these people were, out now yeah. engineers that built get, get the product. tech right first and uh, yeah and all the rest uh, absolutely will follow. yeah yeah so yeah, I then moved on from from Centrix um, and and moved into ServiceNow so really back to if you like that corporate world yeah. um, and joined there in 2012 and did a, had another amazing four and a half years there and again you know learned some new and different things there obviously very much moved from the uh, perpetual licensing model into subscription model there and, you know, the benefits and, and, and opportunity that that afforded, um, as well as far more of an end user based product rather than if you like a kind of a middleware type products that we've done with uh, VMware and, uh, and yeah. Citrix. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, did that for four and a half years, then got to a point where I decided, right, had enough of this. I've done it for a long time that, you know, the highs, the lows of that quarterly incest, you know, every single quarter, I, uh, I just decided I needed to uh, needed to move on to that. So since that time, I've just been took a few months off completely um, and then got into decided I only wanted to work with people that I liked with from now on. So I've uh, done some consulting advisory work I'm currently. Acting as strategy. A, yeah, exactly. I'm an acting sales director with a small Czech software company at the moment called Runecast and, uh, and really enjoying that and enjoying 
not being a hundred percent on it all the time, but being able to do other things and little things as well. So yeah, so that that's me. I hope that didn't go on too long. Great stuff. Gosh. So having held sales leadership positions in three, I mean, what can only be described as tech behemoths, I suppose, mm-hmm. we all know about the importance of company purpose. Did each of these stay true to their original purpose as they grew, as you went through this kind of massive growth period? So I guess no <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> Certainly in, in two right, out of question, three. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, move on. Um, you know, in, in two out of the three, ultimately no uh the third one still continues and continues at pace and that one's obviously service now but if i look at businesses one of the key things and certainly what i'd advise to anybody going into uh wanting to build a career or going after a, a fast growth organization is look at the core technology and see how far that can go and grow if you like you know and in citrix if you think about it even when we started it was it, it never quite became a core technology of, you know, of many environments. It, it did in some, but it didn't completely become a, a, a core technology. Consequently, although it was incredibly well used across many, many environments globally, you know, we already before getting to a billion dollars, probably at about half a billion dollars, you know, I think we saw that the core technology that we're gonna, we were using needed to be added to for us to continue that sort of stellar growth. You know, and at that point in time, you've got a number of things that you can do. And, and Mark spoke very eloquently about, you know, how the product evolved and, and what things, you know, he, he did there and tried there. But, you know, you've, you've either got options to build on the technology that you've got, build out a platform, whatever, whatever it may be, um, or you buy technology in, you know, and, and you add to that. And then if you buy technology in, is it additive to where you are and built on that existing portfolio platform that you've got, or is it sort of separate to and runs in a, in a different way? So, so I think, you know, that, that causes challenges and, and leads to different ways that the companies grow. I, I think the other thing that we had, you know, within Citrix, what we had was a, a vision of somewhere that we would get to with the whole virtual workspace and the yeah. you know, access infrastructure that again, Mark spoke about, and we were trying to, build something there and, and, and grow something. But but what was it? What did it consist of? You know, um, and, and I think that became challenging. And, and I think that almost goes all the way back to, if you look at who, you know, who was kind of running the business, you know, it started out with, you know, with Ed um, and Mark, and we had the technology, the, the fundamental technology that we, um, that we were selling. But, but it then, you know, as Mark's time as CEO, Mark was very much a, a marketing led as well as a product, but he was a sort of a product amateur. And I hope you won't mind me saying this, you know, product amateur, he said it to me before, by the way, product amateur and a, and a marketing professional, if you like, you know, and that was a great place to be because we were looking out, uh, always looking forward, always looking at how we could, you know, build out, out that vision. Um, but I think, you know, even at, you know, there's a time when we set out internally the, the, the route to a billion dollars, if you like, it's called the X1 um, project. And even at that time, rightly so, and, you know, in a sense, honestly, we'd put in, this is what we can expect to get from our core technology. This is what we can expect to get from technology or additions that we can see that we add to that. And here's a hole over here that we don't know what that's going to be yet you know, and, you know, we evolved into that. And what that ultimately became was we, we bought in other technologies that weren't necessarily as synergistic with, with where we started out. And at that point, I think it starts to cause a whole number of challenges and you start ending up as a bit of a mini, mini CA. And, you know, as me, as somebody in the field, 
that was already having to take the vision and distill that down into a local environment, into EMEA or wherever, and yeah. take that to market. And get you know, salespeople people to got, understand it and, get, and then get customers to understand it. And, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So you start throwing that in. Then you start buying organizations that actually have some, not just technology and infrastructure, but sales teams, for example, you start trying to merge those things in. Yeah. It all gets, you know, very difficult, if you like. And, and I think that's... And, and I think, we, you know, we felt that as a, as a, a reseller, as a solutions mm. provider of, of, you know, there were times when there were bits and pieces within the, the, the vision that we didn't get. And, yeah. you know, I think, I think VMware were probably guilty of the same sort of thing. You know, maybe, maybe yeah. the Paul Moritz era in particular. We're going to come on to that, Sam. Yeah. 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 So, well, no, that, I, that'll be really interesting to hear. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And, and again, you know, I think what, what happened with, so, you know, I, as I say, I have the most fond memories of, of Citrix. And when we come on to some of the sort of how it worked for me up until that point, you know, that was some of the most successful approaches and, and, and times of my career, if you like, and certainly my most fond memories within my career. But if I just look at it from the kind of staying on, on purpose and the corporate perspective. So when I moved to VMware, you know, I think for the first couple of years in VMware, it did exactly what I thought and, and hoped it would do. You know, I'd moved to an area where what I saw was a core technology, a fundamental base of what they did, you know, yeah. that had far greater legs and that could take us further, you know, and it did, it probably took VMware to 2 billion, you know, rather than Citrix at a billion started to have yeah. to do that tail off, you know, but I think what happened at, at VMware, it was almost the opposite. You know, you had Diane Green founded it. She was a very technical I individual. You know, I was interviewed by, by Diane Green when I, when I joined and that was, you know, that was fascinating in its own right. I was, I, I basically, I was being, you know, headhunted out of, out of Citrix as it were. It was in December and they wanted me to interview with Carl Eschenbach and, uh, and Diane. And, uh, and they said I needed to come to the West Coast. And I, I pushed back on that and said, I couldn't, I can't come. And they were very surprised. What do you mean you can't come for an interview, you know, with Diane and, and Carl? I said, it's, you know, it's end of year. I can't spend three days out of, out of time and justify that or hide it. And I, I can't do that. So we agreed that I'd go and meet them in New York because I could go in and out in the day. Overnight, and, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that would be fine sort of thing. And um, so, you know, and I met, Diane and she was uh, we ended up having to do the interview in a taxi because she was running late because there'd been some strikes in New York and we were heading out to the airport and she was fearful of not getting her plane home to go and oh, see her me. kids and I was thinking oh man this really isn't a, you know a great time to have an interview um, and one of her opening gambits was I'm still not even sure that we need that many salespeople in our organization and I certainly don't need another Mark Stradling <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, and it was Mark who was recruiting me and I, you know and I'd already had this discussion with Carl Eschenbach who was a very yeah. salesy individual so yeah you know, so I guess what I'm leading to here is you know Diane was a very different person to Mark Templeton and Diane was just stuck on this technology will win out and as long as we're building this great technology which we did have then yeah. then that you know that would stick with us if, but if you build it they will come was, yeah it, exactly and you know we've got over that and of course you know bringing carl in very sales aware individual and that was building out so that that was all going fine but almost what we didn't do was look beyond they did a bit of an ftp but in a smaller way you know what comes after just you know virtualized servers in essence you know and as you say i think you know i think ultimately Diane EMC and Diane, you know, parted ways, fell out, yeah. you know, Paul Moritz came in with some amazing ideas, but it was a huge leap to make, you know, so yeah. we went from almost nothing. This is what we stuck with. It was the virtual servers to suddenly this whole move into, into a different world. And I think, yeah. you know, that again, immediately became very challenging. 
Yeah, and I'll just talk from, from my perspective there. So I was the first person in VMware EMEA not focused on, on vSphere. And vSphere was hitting market saturation and it was it was my job to, to bring new products to market for VMware in EMEA. So I started with end yeah. computing and over time my portfolio of products grew. But I started and I felt like an absolute alien in VMware because yeah. it, I just it felt like end user computing was so far removed. And it was virtualization. It was desktop virtualization, but it felt so far removed from the data center that VMware knew yeah. that it was it was a really, really difficult time. And also the sales organization at the time. They, they felt like they were order takers and sudden, and they didn't have any competition. And suddenly they were competing against Citrix and having to really sell solution and value. And I guess and at that point, competing from a, you know, a fairly distant second when that. It was, that, it, it, it exactly, really was. Yeah. And it was, it, it just wasn't close enough to their current solution. Whereas when they brought vSum on, which was operations management for vSphere, yeah. It was such a natural fit. It was a classic upset. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so whereas the, you know the desktop stuff, you're talking to different people in the organisation, Tot- aren't you? Totally. So what Lewis is talking about just mm. resonated with me so well. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and I think that you know, and and we ran into a bit of a brick brick wall there for a, for a time. I feel, um, you know, and again, that was that was around the period when I when I jumped out of it, if if you like. I mean, it also got got very big. And again, we'll come on to the kind of silos. I mean, I think as I left, I was uh, VP of field ops. So I had all of the, for EMEA. So I had all of the EMEA team, you know, reporting to me, we had, you know, something in excess of, I don't know, about 600 people sort of directly reporting in through, through my organization. And and we were delivering around three quarters of a billion dollars of revenue. So it become a very big beast, you know, all of a sudden. So again, you know, to Vicky's point, it's difficult to then just add something, you know, that's going to in the short term be a very small, addition to your revenues when you're being pushed on a 750 million dollar target and probably you know the end user computing piece is going to be a couple of percent of that you know it was it was but equally knowing how important there you go yeah it, it, exactly so so that you know that became very challenging and again what what do you then do because you've got a cash cow that is you know is starting to hit saturation and you know and what do you bring in and i think that's where if i then compare the three so you know it had a couple of years out as i say doing a, a small startup with its own challenges then dived back in with with service now and you know and i think what i saw really quickly a couple of you know key things within service now was that the base product if you like i mean interesting the base product wasn't even the thing that was sold to start with, or rather it was tried to be sold to start with, didn't work, had to do something else and come back. You know, if you speak to, to Fred, Fred Luddy, you know, Fred always had the vision that he was building a platform upon which applications could be built, you know, and, yeah. and typical admin type applications, applications that would replace spreadsheets and would replace yeah. the need yeah. to email and, you know, that sort of stuff. All that horrible, um, ugly IT ops yeah. stuff. Exactly, exactly. Now he took that to investors and said, this is this is what I propose. And they said, so what does it do? And he said, well, it's a platform upon which you can build apps. Well, what apps? Well, kind of any apps will show me, you know. And he went around this loop and couldn't get any there. Now what his background was, was help desks and IT service management, et cetera. So he built that on top of his platform. Hey, presto, ServiceNow was born. Yeah. 
IT service management in the cloud, something new resonated, suddenly realized that all these big behemoths, talking of behemoths, the IBMs, the CAs, all these kind of people yeah. had had this market sewn up for the last 15 years. And just every three or four years, they did a huge upgrade on their dinosaur of a product and you had to buy more hardware and software and cost you a yeah. fortune. And we just came into that and boom, it was it was super successful. And that's one story and, that, and that's great. And they built out a market and built the market bigger than... Gartner even said the market was, you know, within a within a three to five year period sort of thing. So it did staggeringly That's well. Impressive stuff. It, it was super impressive. And it was amazing to be there during that period of time. But what was even more impressive, I think, was despite almost that early setback, you know, Fred stuck rigidly to what his belief was, where the opportunity was. And that opportunity was to have a platform upon which there were multiple applications, ITSM being one of those or one suite of those but you know to then move into it operations management you know move into hr you know finance um risk you know all sorts of different areas which in and of themselves sound incredibly difficult to do because you think well hang on as you pointed out you're now talking to different people if you're selling into yeah. hr you're using different language but i think you know as as dave wright you know alluded to the actually you're doing roughly the same things you're just using different terminology you know one might be reporting an incident if you're in an IT world it might be a case if you're talking about an HR scenario yeah. but but it's roughly similar the, the engine know, and, is the same it's the descriptors that change absolutely so what we weren't changing was the engine we were just adding pieces on top consequently you could bring in experts or people that have been involved in HR software or, or whatever and you know but build upon the platform but so so that was clever because and what I thought always when I was there and indeed, again, very cleverly had been managed, you know, whilst at the time we were there, we were supposed, you know, we were competing against IBM CA, maybe BMC or whatever. But always in the background, the ultimate competitor was going to be Salesforce, you know, and other platform plays. Yeah. And again, very early on, we did not have Salesforce within our environment, despite it being a far better CRM than the homemade one that, that we had um, in our environment. And this was always because in the mindset, it was that's ultimately where we're going to play. This could be a platform play. You know, that was fascinating. And the other thing that they kept incredibly true to, which again, just so helped in terms of the growth and from a sales perspective and in, in field is we bought lots of technologies whilst I was there that would add to, you know, add functionality, add different elements to a suite. But every single time we bought them in and we then spent whatever time was needed to completely rewrite them effectively onto our platform. And, you know, and all the way through, we had this mantra of one platform, one version of the truth, you know, and they never slipped from that. So, you know, when we were competing against somebody like BMC, who quickly moved from having an on-premise proposition to cloud proposition, but all they really did was buy a cloud proposition from somewhere else yeah rebrand it and then sell it as an option you could buy our, our on-prem one or our off-prem one they were yeah. two fundamentally different products you know and it sort of showed when you tried to and they, they probably had two fundamentally different sales teams effectively competing against each other well, absolutely. And of course, they took the view, Mr. Customer, we can give you whatever you want. You know, we took the view, no way is to do it this, and yeah. ours is the better way to do that. You know, so, so uh, yeah, so I felt they stayed very close, very true to And it was frustrating sometimes because I could wait on occasions a year for a technology I'd heard about that we bought. It could be a year before it was packaged up and properly, you know, put into our, into our product suite that I could take to market. You know, but once I did that, we all understood what it was based upon. Yeah. We all understood the platform. Yes, we may need some additional people to help us go into a different space, but we but we got it. And it yeah. was so 
much easier for us to yeah. sort of continue. You weren't just it. presented yeah. with a bag of bits. No, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. So, yeah. so I think that that's kind of fundamentals of, of how they work. You know, how much of that is how good is your core product and how far it can take you? How much of that is understanding how to actually evolve your core product, you know, which I'd argue that they did very, very well in, uh, you know, in service now and continue to do so. Yeah, it's really interesting. That. How did those organizations differ in terms of vision and leadership style? Yeah, again, I mean, I think what I love and what I guess I've learned, one of the things I've always loved about sales is that you can be very, very different characters, different individuals, different types of people, and still be really good salespeople, you know, and all have to be one sort of type yeah. of person. And I, and, I, and I feel leaders can be like that as well. So whilst I've got a lot of great respect and, you know, thanks to all the leaders involved in those three organizations, they're all very, very different. And again, I have my own personal views as to what it was like and, and you know, how they were as leaders. So, you know, with Mark, for example, Mark was a very communicative, he was engaging, people bought into Mark Templeton as an individual, he was incredibly mm-hmm. good at knowing all of his people, knowing who everybody was. So he engendered that sort of team spirit behind you he was also marketing and visionary so he was going out there and always talking about great new places that we were going to get to as a business and that motivated and and inspired people if you like but it but it also caused its its challenges of course and mark spoke about this on your podcast when we had a when we had a tough time and mark himself took the view to move himself as it were to the side and and drop out of that ceo role so we were a little bit rudderless for a time there if you like and you know, and it took a while for Mark to really sort of rebuild that back. I think when he did, he became stronger than ever because, you know, mm. we'd all stuck with it and, and we got through that and we became strong. But I think because of his style, which is always looking out and looking forward and looking to build that vision and the virtual workplace, etc. You know, I don't think we always had the really solid sales leadership and even sometimes product leadership behind to ensure that we didn't go off in these different ways that, that we've been speaking about. Whereas if you then look at, at VMware, as I say, Diane was was very resolute in how she managed and drove that business. She brought in Carl Eschen back to do the sales piece. So that, that worked really well. But at her perspective, she was incredibly engaging if you were a, if you were a, a techie, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember going <laughs> to events where Diane would, Diane would present and Diane would split the audience half the audience would be absolutely enraptured by her and and love what she said and hang on every word and often they'd have to finish her sentences because quite often Diane would would get halfway through a sentence up on the stage in front of 10,000 people and not quite finish the sentence and of course for all the technical guys in the room they totally got it and were there I was sat there thinking I'm not quite sure where that was where that was going and I displayed to you know uh, to, to find out afterwards so just very different styles and again arguably Diane didn't do was bring in that out and out CEO who would understand how to take that that vision forward and, and ultimately I guess you know EMC kind of took that over and put Paul Moritz in to to do that with the then challenges that we had whereas I think if you look at what ServiceNow did Fred Luddy was a was a Diane Green if you like in many ways you know he loved his coding he loved his building that product that was his passion and what he wanted to do and surf at lunchtimes or whatever but what I think he realized early on and again he didn't say himself he, he didn't like doing the, the numbers bit. He didn't like doing the hiring and firing, the nasty bit of being a CEO. So really quickly, he got in you know, Frank Slootman to, to come in. Yeah. And, do that. and Frank was your archetypal hard CEO in many respects. You know, he's a, a Dutch guy, but with 20 years on the on the West Coast of, of the US already. So Fred was very cuddly. Frank very much wasn't. But so Frank, so Mark Templeton very much liked 
dying green liked even if i wasn't quite synced up with her you know fred like diane frank you just respected i mean it, it yeah. wasn't a matter of whether you liked him or not you know he was uh he was going to do his own thing but boy did it's he the old good good cop bad cop thing Absolutely, absolutely. But also back to the whole kind of thing on purpose and on point, as well as Fred sticking on point from a technology perspective, Frank totally stayed on point from a business perspective. And for him, it was all about the customers. I've never known a CEO get onto customers as much as he did. To be fair to Mark, Mark Templeton was very, very good at that as well. But, you Mm. know, Frank was very good on it from a from a business perspective rather than a product perspective, if you like. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think very different kinds of leaders with a different view of, of what the vision was and for me to, to pick that up and to take that out into into the regions you know there, yeah. was, there was very different styles there I guess if you like yeah so, no yeah. that makes sense so the region thing is interesting because mm. yeah I, obviously I've I've seen the IT industry from a UK standpoint in my days in softcat and most IT vendors manufacturers are predominantly US based right that's a, yep. a fact of life even if they started in, in Israel or India or wherever else, the, the hub of the operation, particularly all the ones that we're talking about with, with your career. How does that work with um, leading sales in, in EMEA, you know, a, a secondary region as far as the US is often concerned? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is fascinating. And again, you know, irrespective of what I've said about the three organizations and, you know, how successful they've been and staying on purpose in terms of how it's been for me to be able to execute those things and, and work in, in EMEA has, has definitely been different. So from my perspective, what's important as a leader in a region, you've almost got to be that middle person between what's the corporate vision and what, you know, what is the, the ultimate leadership wanting to achieve? And then understanding your local environment and being able to translate that and, and deliver that land that in, in your local region, I guess. And I think what that requires is a good understanding and access to both. And again, I felt all three of those organizations, and it's probably strengths of all of them, I felt as a, as a leader within a region that I absolutely did have access to the leadership and the vision, and that was put out there and, and was clear. So, so that's a good start point. What, what I think you also need is then good understanding of the, the environment that you are going to take it back to, clearly, um, because it, there's a degree of translation that, that's needed, and have the ability, and we'll come on to it, to have some degree of flexibility as to how you, how you deliver that. And, and I'll give a clear example, a, a silly and, a, a, in a sense, a simple example, and back to that X1 example in, in Citrix, which was the billion-dollar project. Up until that point, all of the vision, all of the, apart from Mark you know, and, and the team doing the presentations, if I was bringing the vision back to, to my region, I would be delivering that in, in my way, as it were, to them, if I'd been to a corporate meeting or whatever. And this X1 was the first time that we were actually given a script. So all regions were given a script that this is what we're going to say across the globe. And I got why we did it and, and everything else. But it was really interesting because, number one, I found it really hard. It's one of the most difficult presentations I ever did because I'm just not an on-script person, really. So I found it difficult to sort of stick to that script and not do my little extras or my ad-libs, et cetera, et cetera. But also I found it hard because it was then totally in the language of the corporate, which, of course, is American and and we all know there's differences and, you know, split by a similar language yeah. and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah. So, so, you know, so I found that an interesting thing to go through and, and realize that actually, yeah, it is that translation that is pretty key to taking it out to your regions, you know, and then within sub regions as well. And I was 
British running a part of an EMEA team where I had different yeah. people. So, you know, again, it's understanding that and allowing that to roll down through and, and being able to do that, I think, and given the ability to do that. And, and, it, and if I look at that, what do I mean by being given the ability to be flexible in terms of how you implement things. So a message is one thing. And if, if it's a corporate message or it's a marketing message, you know, clearly you've got to stick with that. But how do you actually execute and take it to market? You know, within Citrix, we were passionate in Europe about a, a partner route to market, for example, way, way more in Europe than they were in the US. But we were very much given the opportunity to be able to utilize that, you know, and to build out that route to market and given strong support to do that rather than as if we were outliers trying to do it. And in fact, so much so within Citrix that actually once we had built out such a successful go-to-market strategy with partners in Europe, it actually fed back significantly back into the US and the amount of product and solutions that were delivered through partners in the US went up dramatically after you know, after we, we'd done so in EMEA. And I always felt that was a real positive thing that we were able to do and we were allowed to do within Citrix. You know, I didn't feel in VMware, nor indeed in ServiceNow, that we were given the ability to flex in that way. I spoke to people within VMware on a couple of occasions or a few occasions and said, I'd really like us to be able to get to do that because, you know, I believe we can be more successful. And the, the example I always gave was that there were, you know, a couple of quarters in the sort of heyday of our growth in Citrix when in EMEA we beat the US and the Americas from a revenue perspective. Yeah. And, th- and that was unheard of, just was totally unheard of and never happened in VMware, even when we started to tail off. So it wasn't just about a saturation thing. I, honestly, I don't know in ServiceNow because ServiceNow just keeps going like that. So I never got to a point where I felt we were catching or yeah. otherwise, they just kept accelerating in, in the US. That was an up but, and to the right hand that Lewis was showing there, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, that, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> Many apologies. Good yes, point, I'm, good I'm, point, yeah. As you know, Vicky, I, I present with my hands quite often. You do, indeed. <laughs> Don't stop. You know, another example of to why I think you need, you know, we need that sort of flexibility and also being given that. There was there was one point in in one of the organizations, I won't say which, you know, but it was fairly early days. Um, and we were looking at how we were going to extend the sales team across EMEA, basically. And we we're talking to this global uh leader of of sales. And, you know, he basically just, he was a bit of a baseball bat kind of, you know, wielding sort of sales guy, American sales guy. And he sat us down and he said, okay, this is how it's going to be. And he proceeded to explain how, you know, we were going to sit everybody in possibly Amsterdam, maybe Dublin, he didn't know. And, uh, you know, the whole team would be built up like that. And bear in mind, this was days before Zoom, et cetera, where people sort of expected actual meetings and people to uh, be in country. And he explained all of this and we got halfway through it. And I sort of said, how much do you understand about Europe? You've got to be a little careful when you're talking to a person like this, you know? Um, And he said, oh, you know, yeah, I know lots, you know, it's fine. I know plenty about Europe. And I then said to him, so how, how many times have you actually visited Europe from a business perspective? And he said, never. Um, And I said, okay, right. Okay. So I talked a little bit about all the different countries. It's a bit different, you know, Norway to South Africa, you know, is not like Texas to, you know, California or something, even though you think they're dramatically different and they are, believe me, there's more differences here, you know? And after a bit of a discussion with this, he said, he looked at me and he just said, hell, what is it then? A language thing? I said, well, the language comes into it, but there's a lot more to that, you know. And so what it did was we we agreed, fair play to him, that he would come over, we'd put a tour together, we'd walk him around it, you know, and, and he did that and he came over and sure enough, we changed how we went to market and, and we had a lot more say in 
where we put the offices, where we put people, you know, how we worked. And that, and that was super important. And he, great that he did that was one other funny anecdote as well he whilst he came over he went to see my colleague in uh, in Paris and my colleague in Paris thought we'll take them out for a nice dinner took him to one of his favorite restaurants in uh, in, in Paris and uh, they ended up leaving before they uh, even got to uh, got to ordering because the sales leader a very strong American guy wanted to buy his steak and he refused to order his steak unless the maitre d would tell him how much it weighed and the oh. maitre d in this very posh Parisian restaurant basically said that is not how we kind of you know measure our food in terms of the, uh, the, the quantity qu- of it. And, quality over quantity. <laughs> exactly. And then to make my point totally, you can imagine a very strong-minded American wanting to order his steak by the, the by the pound, and yeah. a very strong-willed French uh, oh. head of his front of house. They agreed to differ, and he didn't manage. <laughs> my my colleague in France was mortified, of course. But you know, That's but that brilliant. I think that probably. Showed to him the extent of the cultural differences. Yeah, so, so I think you know, being that's allowed. What we, that's to what we call a teachable moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so to me, you know, being given that sort of flexibility to just do things a little different um, was really important for me. And yeah. I think I saw that in, in different in the different organisations who let us do that a bit more. And so would you call that empowerment? Uh, yeah, are, are I you talking about it being empowered to sort of make your own rules and? You know, within the company framework, clearly, you can't go and yes. sell an entirely different product or something. But No, and there's absolutely a fine line between that, and I totally accept that. You can't just be going off doing your own thing and making things up as you go. And, and, and I also totally accept and understand that as things evolve, more needs to become global, more needs to, you know, as, yeah. as that increases. And that's part of an inevitability of it, I think. And that's also why I believe that even though these companies, as I was saying, were all very, very different very similar things happened at certain points, you know, and that billion dollar sort of point, even though one was a lot harder to get to it than, than another was, once we got to that point, a lot, of, a lot of similar things happened. And some of it was that sort of globalization. And as part of that globalization, you know, we had greater silos, greater hierarchies, organizational structures, and we lost at very similar times, those more entrepreneurial sorts that had taken us from 20 million to, to a billion or 50 million to a, to a billion. If, and it happened very similarly across all three of them. So I certainly took a view that that was an inevitability of, mm. of getting to that, that sort of level of scale. But certainly at different stages through that and continuing after it, a degree of empowerment, I think is really important and certainly makes you as an individual feel like you're contributing so a lot more. Certainly for me, it made me feel a lot better about it. And I think enabled me to be far more passionate about what I was doing, far more bringing my team on board and, you know, because I totally believed in what we were doing rather than just having to toe the corporate line and, and go with something that I didn't necessarily agree with. So, so yeah, I think empowerment is absolutely critical and a key word, but within reason, as you say, and, you know, clearly in this current incredibly globalized world we live in, then um, as you say, you can't be selling different products and mm. you can't do Yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a limit to how, how far you can take that empowerment, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think a a key thing is feeling like you have the ability to take your thoughts back up. You know, that that was always a thing that I felt. And, and again, you know, you have to do, you have to do that in in the right way as well. And, 
give an example of, of, you know, Mark Templeton, who was always very good at listening when we fed back to him, but, but you've also got to be careful as to how you do that and when you do it. And I remember personally, I was a little naive and sort of calling out perhaps quite an assertive or aggressive thought process around what should be done in EMEA to make things better in a, in a big public audience. And, um, you know, I was well and truly put down by Mark at that point in time and felt very uh, bruised and battered from it. But interestingly, uh, a few hours later, Mark sought me out, found me, sat me down. We talked it through. He agreed with me and basically <laughs> just alluded to the fact that's not there was a time and a place to do these yeah, things. So, so, you, you, so you again, it's about building pick, that report. Pick your forum. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Absolutely that right. Absolutely right. But the, the belief that you feel that people are listening to that, I think, is the, you know, is a critical yeah. element from yeah, my point really, of view. Really important. So with your experience of three hyper growth tech behemoths, as I referred to them earlier. One of the things I know you talked to Vicky about is, is silos within organizations. You know, you talked about what one of the companies buying in external organizations and sort of mashing them together and maybe ServiceNow doing a slightly better job of that. Do you want to give us a bit of perspective on that? Yeah, sure. And, and again, it, it's partly that, you know, and that definitely made it tricky because you were completely separate teams, you know, that you're trying to bond together and that, you know, with greater or lesser success. And, we, um, you know, we always thought that was a real advantage in Softcat in that we did all of that stuff organically. We didn't acquire and try and bash two disparate teams together. Absolutely. And I think that delivered a coherency to your sales team. And again, having worked with your guys and grew incredibly large, you know, and, and pretty quickly, but did it all through that organic growth, I think, kept that culture and kept that consistency of approach within your organization. And again, you know, I think that's what they've you know, managed to do, if you like, with it within a service now. Mm. But the other aspect, um, and I guess what I was talking about with Vicky as well, is that sort of siloing. And I think that comes right from the early on you know, and the culture, if you like, right at the top of of these organizations. And I think one thing I would say is all of these leaders, if you can have spoken about, you know, different ones, and they were all different, had different attributes within the three companies, but they get very focused on that, on that vision and looking forward, et cetera, et cetera. And then to a greater or lesser extent, they look at, not care, but, but put focus on the structure below them, if you like. They have their top team, you know, and as long as that's delivering them what they need and between them they can they can build out their vision they move forward but what happens downstream of that i think is what i'm interested in and we can end up with these very siloed you know there's a leader of a department in the us builds out their team all the way out to to the regions with very strong walls at either side of them their own objectives their own approach and when you're out in the field and you are trying to effectively act as a leader, you know, at one point I was called the, the managing director of, of Citrix UK. You know, I was anything but that. And I never expected to have, you know, the finance or the HR or, or whatever sort of things reporting into me. But what I needed and wanted to be able to do was have an influence of how we went to market. So I needed the marketing team, you know, the pre-sales team, the channel teams, et cetera, to be within my sphere of influence so that we could coherently go to market, you know, and what tends to happen in these organizations, because the leaders of each of those areas sit in the US, they want to keep their hard walls, or they put in place a matrix structure, which is always, you know, tricky, tricky to do. And that sort of thing happens really quite quickly. And before you even know it, because if you're on stellar growth, and everything's going fine, almost nobody minds. But at that first blip in the road, where it gets tricky, all of a sudden the finger pointing happens. And then everybody says, I've done my objectives. I hit my numbers. It's, it's the classic. The sales team is saying, we haven't got enough leads coming in. Exactly. Marketing team says, well, I hit my MQL target. And the inside sales go, well, we hit our demo target, you know, whatever it might yeah. be. And my sales guys go, yeah, but they were all 
demos that weren't appropriate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so it's how do you manage that? And I think that that's been really tricky. And I think as a, as a regional leader, sometimes you can have a big influence on that. Sometimes you can't. In Citrix, for example, we went through a period where Defen Shostrom did a great job of dragging all of that in, under his wing and into his responsibility and you know he was quite often referred to in corporate as you know oh the awkward european or oh he's <laughs> difficult or, or whatever you know and i love the fact that they thought he was difficult because by saying he was difficult meant he was fighting the course for, yeah. for EMEA, you know and taking it to market and that engendered a great alignment between us all with stefan even if people didn't report to stefan specifically yeah. you know he built that that team if you like and that you know team within teams and, and we felt very strongly and very passionate about the EMEA team he did things like we did an EMEA kickoff you know and there was a global kickoff and ultimately it moved to a global kickoff and he wasn't allowed to do his EMEA kickoff anymore but all the while he was doing an EMEA kickoff that sense of of you know feeling as part of that team was was excellent and and that sort of thing sort of thing I think is is really important and and sometimes really tricky to do and that's the kind of silos that that, that can become very very frustrating when you're trying to execute these things out in the field but are often overlooked and again there's no easy answer to them there's all sorts of different theories and management structures that you can put in place but I think the critical element of it is how you build that team. And it's about building that culture, that local culture. There's a corporate vision and a global vision. There's some structure that's gonna be in place, whatever that is, matrix, hard lines. It, it just is what it is to some extent. What you can do regionally is build a culture that says, let's go towards this as a team. You know, And that's absolutely critical. Something that I experienced with Softcat in, in looking after the tech people within a very sales driven organization mm-hmm. is we had to have a very slightly different subculture within the tech group versus yep. the, the sales group, you know, still aligned with the overall soft cap direction of travel and cultural tenets, but yep. maybe a little calmer, maybe a little bit more, more real, ale, real ale and less Jaeger bomb. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Sorry, Vic. I was just going to say, so when I first talked to you about what we were setting out to do at the Amplified Group and whether you'd be interested in in working with us. I think it's fair to say that it's taken us up until now to really figure out how to explain what we do. And it's interesting, you were just talking about culture and we steered away from the word culture Mm. for, for quite a long time. And Mark had a really great description of culture. It's about how you get stuff done. Yeah, within a company yeah. and and but to translate that into sales leadership which is where the journey that we've been on over the last few months it's about how you get stuff done more quickly in a sales organization that means you are delivering the results that you need to deliver and yeah, totally. how you organize to do that you know the conversation that we've had about these silos forming and how can you intentionally break them back down again and that's where we've come to in our in our client journey of how you actually start to build a team of teams and we haven't got time to go into this in a huge amount of detail Mm. now but it's getting that place where you're acting as one organization with one overarching goal that the leadership team in EMEA there isn't a degree of separation they're all in it together and how then you bring that down to the management layer where you can ensure 
that the marketing team and the sales team and the SE team and the channel team and all of these different virtual teams are actually just one virtual team and they've got complete understanding of what each other are doing and I think that's the gap that there is at the minute so we've got a methodology that we've just built around that that we're not going to go into now but I'm really excited to be taking this to our clients and I think it's so important Vicky and I've only ever seen it properly properly work once before you know and that was within citrix in that in that period of time in those early days and i think yeah. the you know the the proof of that was and you know we had a, a reunion recently you know a yeah. 20 year reunion and the amount of people a that turned up b the kind of genuine sort of love in the room yeah. and the fact that just about everybody there said it was the best period of their career now some of them have gone on to yeah. very successful careers after that and done bigger better you know roles etc but that was so important and we had something there we had something some magic there to, to distill so yeah and, like you said yeah. maybe culture is the wrong word but you know at that point in time it all gelled and worked together and we had that it's about finding that and replicating it but, but the the other point on that is we had it at that time and I've heard another Citrix colleague from EMEA describe it as fragile because as though we had it then we didn't keep it and it's how yeah. do you keep it and intentionally keep it because yeah, you would no, argue that that's that's when the momentum was lost and that's when that inertia that mm. mark talked about creeps in so how do you continue yeah. to go and execute at speed so that's that's really yeah. hot on our on our agenda at the minute no i agree yeah absolutely lewis as we bring this towards the close perhaps you should give us three quick takeaways for our listeners yeah, and I, and I will keep, keep them very short, as I think we sort of touched on most of them. But so from my perspective as just a, a regional leader, particularly in the, sales, in the sales environment, the key thing for me was, as I said, acting as that middleman so, and taking a local approach to deliver the vision. So understanding that vision from the leadership, but being able to go and localize it and take it out to your team, I think is, is a key one from my point of view. Also being able and feeling able to take that local input back up to the leadership, the corporate leadership. You know, that's very empowering in and of itself if they allow you to do that. Obviously, choose your right time to do it. Don't do it like I did early on and upset your mm-hmm. CEO. But, um, but you know, that, that's a really important thing. And then finally, the one that we've really just t- touched on is if you build out that local, whatever you call it, team of teams, you know, local culture, get that absolute feeling that you are in this as a team, then even if you have these silos, which are inevitable, even if you report up different streams up to the US, you know, you do pull together as a team. And if you can do that, that is, I believe, when you will be most successful. And certainly in my experience, that's when we have been most successful in the organisations that, that I've worked within. Brilliant. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So, Vicky, this might be your big moment as you're going to introduce us to not hero time, but team time. Yes, Sam, you're right. So we are going to move on from hero time and we're going to introduce team time. And there is so much in the industry now about customer experience and employee experience and partner experience. Well, we're all about team. And so we're introducing the concept of team experience. But team experience comes from... What does it really feel like? What does a great team feel like? And we've all got those experiences that mean so much to us. And I need to just give a quick shout out to 
Polly Lambert, who is someone that I've worked with. Actually, I've known her longer than you, Lewis. So Polly, I worked with in distribution years ago. We were working on our customer journey and she said, what does it feel like to be an amplified team? What, what do they get at the end of it? And it's, it's when team feels like a family, when team feels like you know everyone has got your back and that if you're feeling frazzled, people are going to jump in and, and try and help you. So it's that, what is team experience? So we thought we would move this to actually finding out what a great team experience means to our guests. So it is wonderful to be starting with Lewis. I think that's a great idea, Vicky. I love the whole idea of a team experience and much of my career, partly why I love working with partners and that route to market is because that's, again, the sort of epitome of working as a team. You know, it's not just yeah. yourselves or your own vendor. So so for me, that's super important. So again, I'd, I'd probably look, back to the very fact that with this big reunion that we had, all the team came back together and had seen, some people I hadn't seen for 10 years. And yet it was just immediately back into it. And I think that showed the strength of feeling and team energy that we had at that point in time. And if I think back now, you know, I can just think of all the occasions where as a team, we did great things, fun things together, you know, the kickoffs, the, you know, the events that we held in the office where everybody stayed and we did them. You know, and again, I think that's not always there. You know, if, if people say, oh, do you want to come for a drink? And, you know, half a dozen of the regulars will go out and everyone else goes home. You know, we had a period there where, you know, if anybody suggested doing something after work, you know, there'd be 20 or 30 of us. And some of us lived yeah. a long way away, et cetera. But it, yeah. that sense of really genuinely believing we were in it as a team, I think we had the hierarchies. Of course, we did. We had to have. But I genuinely don't think people held back or felt in any way restricted to talk to everybody at that point in time. I truly believe that. So whether it was me talking with Mark or Stefan, whether it was, you know, Sally or Lindsay, you know, talking with me, you know, or with Stefan, I genuinely think that everyone felt open and felt empowered and felt relaxed and secure enough that they could genuinely say what they felt about everything, personal things, work things, put their ideas out there. And I think that engendered a team that moved forward together well. Yeah. That's a great, a great summary and a, and a magnificent first team time. Well, yeah, I enjoyed that. That was, that, that, was, that was good fun. Really good to, uh, to catch up with you, Lewis. I think there's some fantastic insight there. And all of it remains is for me to say thanks for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. And as always, your comments and your subscriptions are most gratefully received. Yeah.